0: Hebrews chapter 11. We now continue our series on Sunday morning that we've entitled The Hall of Faith. As we continue making our way through the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the title of our message this morning is By Faith He Kept the Passover. We are now standing before one of the inductees to what we have deemed the Hall of Faith. Of course, we are paralleling this chapter with what we would know as the Hall of Fames that we have around our nation today. Individuals that God has selected to use as illustrations for us, to encourage us in our faith in the Lord. Faith is simply a trust in God and then acting according to that trust that we have in God. That's the simplest way that I could probably put it forward. It's having a trust in God and then acting according to that trust accordingly. These individuals, under extraordinary circumstances, trusted the Lord and acted according to that trust. And as a result, they became individuals that God commended for their faith and also now use as illustrations for us in our faith or towards our faith in God. I believe that we grow in our faith when we grow in our knowledge of our God. Faith in and of itself is insufficient. You can have faith in almost anything, but faith apart from something else is just random faith. It's not having faith that matters, it's having faith in God that matters. That's the biblical understanding of faith. When the Bible instructs us or exhorts us to have faith, it is assuming that we are attaching that faith to God. And there's no better way to grow in our faith than to understand who our God is. And we get that understanding, we obtain that understanding by reading the Bible from the very beginning of the book of Genesis to the very end, the book of Revelation. And as we do so, we begin to understand the character and the nature of our God. His abilities, so superior to what we have carry in our own personal capabilities and as a result our faith will grow it grows as our knowledge of god grows but it's not only simple knowledge of god it's understanding that through jesus christ we have a relationship with god in which we can call him our heavenly father or as paul affectionately put it in romans our abba father our dad knowing therefore and understanding that how dad will interact with us through the promises in which he has made to us that we therefore can stand upon as we go through this shaky, insecure world. It is possible on those promises to find security in an insecure world and therefore allowing us to move forward and deepen in our relationship with God. It's very hard to grow in a relationship with anybody if you don't truly understand where you uh, stand with them individually, is it? When I talk to married couples who are having difficulty, they've often come to a place within their marriage where they don't really know where they stand with one another, if each each other loves each other the way that they are supposed to love each other and therefore i say that as we understand how god loves us he gives us a sure footing to stand upon as an individual and therefore we can grow in our relationship with him he gives us that security in an insecure world knowing that we can trust him always and that he is always faithful to his promises. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. When we are weak, he is strong. This is the God in whom we serve, and it is this God that we put forward to you today to help you to grow in your faith towards him. And as we are looking at each of these inductees into the hall of faith, and there are many, we realize first and foremost that it's not the inductee that we are truly uh, witnessing, but how God in and through the life of this inductee uh, worked in extraordinary ways. We said it this way, God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. And what allowed him to do so was their trust and faith in him. Let's read up to our text because it it is truly the last sentence of the paragraph starting in verse 23. So let's begin in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful And by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Moses is undoubtedly one of the great heroes of the Jewish faith. Today Jewish people who uh, have not yet come to the realization that Jesus Christ is their Messiah still hold to the covenant in which was given to them through, through by God through Moses we call it the Mosaic Covenant. And in this covenant is the law, the Torah, the uh, the very Ten Commandments in which the Jewish people and we as Christians hold so valuable and so dearly together. And as a result, these people, these individuals still to this day look back at one of the greatest moments in the Exodus story, and that is the instituting of the Feast of Passover. The Passover for the Jewish person was so significant because it marked within them a new beginning. It marked within them a new identity. It marked within them the ability of God to separate his people from those of the world and draw them out through the salvation in which he would provide through the blood of the lamb. To the Jewish people, this today is still the centerpiece of their, of course, when they uh, come to God during the Passover feast each and every day, I mean, sorry, each and every year, they remember the Lord, their God, in their saber, and they allow uh, He to manifest Himself through the elements of the Passover feast. However, though, as a Christian, We see that the Passover, the great implementation of the feast that delivered the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, was a foreshadow of what was still yet to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we look affectionately upon the Passover, and as Christians we are not required to keep the Passover, because we see the Passover being beautifully fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ where Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians actually calls Jesus the Passover Lamb himself. That he himself became the Lamb in which was slaughtered on our behalf to draw us out of the world into the salvation in which God would provide and bring us into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. But for the Jewish person, For the individual reading this letter in the first century, as the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know technically who that was. Many uh, believe that it is Paul, and there is good evidence for that. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers that have been expelled from their homeland of Israel there in the first century due to the fact that they have become Christians, They have now found that Jesus Christ was the Messiah in whom they were waiting for. And as a result, at first, they were warmly welcomed amongst the Jewish people. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the newly found church there in Jerusalem found favor in the sight of all people. And many were coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ from the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. But as time went on, the religious leaders of Jerusalem became threatened by the presence of this new, upcoming, and uh, truly uh, rising uh, group of individuals that no longer looked to Moses and to the religious leaders of Israel for their direction, but now were more interested in the teachings of these, well, fishermen who had been endowed by, with power by the Holy Spirit. These individual disciples that had been with Jesus for three years. And the religious leaders watched the life of these individuals who had been with Jesus and powered by the Holy Spirit. And the ministry in which Jesus started now appeared to be continuing through the hands of His disciples. And the religious leaders saw that they were capable of doing things that they weren't that they themselves, the religious leaders, that is, were not. And they became threatened because now these disciples, these apostles of Jesus Christ, Peter and James and John and so forth, had authority over the people. The people were subjecting themselves willingly to the authority of these uh, disciples, these apostles, and negating the authority of the appointed religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And this became a real problem. Uh, It became such a problem that the religious leaders then set forth the temple guard to begin persecuting violently the church. And as a result of that persecution, and one of those Pharisees, his name was Saul, we later now know him as Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, began to persecute these newly found Christians. And as these Jewish people could not find refuge within their own uh, country any longer, any, they couldn't find safety or solitude, they had to leave Israel. And they went into the regions of Asia Minor, which were Gentile countries, thinking that they could just uh, you know, become part of those communities and that they would be left alone and so forth in their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. But then there arose a second problem. Those regions in Asia Minor, those cities were governed by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire believed that Caesar was also a deity. He was a god. In fact, the uh, money in which he produced um, would have an image of himself on it and also have an inscription saying the son of God underneath it. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems uh, pretty bold to say the least. But he made an inscription and he would be, uh, require his people to worship him as the son of God. Well, these newfound Christians couldn't do so. They would have no other God before them. Even as Jewish people, they wouldn't do it. But now as Christians, Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior. He was King of kings and Lord of lords. They were not going to bow the knee to Caesar. And so the persecution continued again there in their displacement And they were rushed out of the communities. And now when I talk about being rushed out of the communities, understand that the community atmosphere is where all economic trade took place, where homes were found, food could be found, water could be found. And now they're being uh, thrown out into the wilderness, into the desert regions around these cities. And they felt alone. They were—they had literally become nomads. They had appeared to lose their identity. Uh, they're no longer Jewish people. They're no longer in the land of Israel, which is so precious to them. They had lost their wealth by leaving Israel, and now they lost their community affiliation in their Gentile regions of Asia Minor. For many of those Gentile regions, those communities, those cities, had synagogues within it that they could not participate in at all because of their found faith in christ so they literally found themselves as individuals wandering the desert in tents as nomads they lost everything simply because they believed in jesus christ it is this group of people that peter writes to when he talks about the dispersia. when uh, james writes and he says i'm writing to the dispersia. he's writing to these people who are displaced and so in their position of being displaced, they're now questioning the rationale of becoming a Christian. And Judaism was accepted by the Roman nation, or Roman Empire. Uh, they could go back to Israel and once again find their national identity with, and their ethnic identity if they just renounced Christ and went back to, Egypt, uh, to Israel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying there's nothing to go back to. For Jesus Christ is superior than all that was found in the law and in Moses and in the angels, etc. For now he is our great high priest. There's nowhere to go. So, He gives, the writer of Hebrews gives these individuals all these examples of individuals who by faith were able to weather incredibly difficult circumstances. And now he comes to Moses, which was their hero. And reminds them of how Moses acted by faith. And encouraging them to act by faith in this moment of doubt, in this moment of wavering, this moment of vulnerability. He is now writing to them and saying, look, don't don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. You've got the answer. You've got the one true God in Christ Jesus. Then he brings up in the concluding uh, sentence... Of this look at the life of Moses, and that is the institution of the Passover feast. For you and I, as well, I think most of us would be Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. I don't think any of us may be anybody Jewish here? Before I say it and somebody comes up to me afterwards and says I was Jewish and you didn't recognize me. Well, I didn't, I didn't know you were here. Uh, Most of us are Gentile believers, so when we look back at the Jewish faith, we don't fully understand the implications of some of the Jewish terminology. Right? That makes sense. And so when we read about the Passover... You know, we may have certain images that uh, pop in our mind's eye concerning it. You know, maybe it's the famous Charlton Heston movie, you know, the Ten Commandments, or maybe you've actually had uh, uh, the privilege of going to a, a Jewish family's home when they had the Seder dinner and you got to see it exercise, you know, performed there or maybe you saw a Seder dinner performed here at our church when we had um, uh, our dear friend Justin Crone come in and, and have a Seder dinner with us and you saw the implication of each element of the Seder dinner. And we understand that the Passover was the keeping of the firstborn protected by the blood of a lamb that was spread upon the doorpost and the lentil of the entrance door of the home and as the angel of death proceeded through the land of Egypt each and every time he saw that blood he passed over that home and the firstborn remained alive and if he had not found that blood there then then God would take the firstborn of that home of the cattle and so forth and he instructed all people to do so. And those who did were spared, and those who did were didn't were not. And we understand the conceptual understanding of the Passover, but for the Jewish mind, it is more comprehensive. And it is that it is that depth that I want to bring us into this morning a little bit to truly appreciate all that is found within the Passover. Again, it's the greatest foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus Christ. But the Passover, like Jesus Christ, means something extraordinarily special for those who hold to it. For the Passover and for those who've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, both of them indicated to the individual a new life was beginning. And in the beginning of that new life, there's a underlying question that lies at the heart of it all, and that is, what shall you do with the new life in which God is giving you? That same question lies underneath The understanding of the new life that we have in Jesus Christ, for we know that all who come to Christ, the old life has passed away. All things have become new. Now that things have become new, the question then remains, what shall we do with the newness of that life? And in the writings of the New Testament, you see this question being asked in different ways. Many times by Paul, for example, if you look at the book of Ephesians, theologically he plays out in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, all that God has done for us through Christ Jesus. As he begins his letter, he says, these are all the blessings that we have in the heavenly places through the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, he then poses a question to the individual reading. The individual reading he assumes as a believer in Christ, understanding now theologically all that Christ has done for us, he poses this question. And he states to us now walk worthy of all that Christ has done for you. Not to earn our salvation, not to obtain it or to maintain our salvation but he's addressing that underlying concern. Now that you have new life, this is the new life that you should be living. This is how you should spend your new life. Not with the things that you did previously coming to, before you came to Jesus Christ, but now live it in the newness of the life in which God has given you. That's an extraordinary promise. It's an extraordinary question. We have been granted new life in Jesus Christ and now really posed in the Passover and in the person of Jesus Christ is what will you do with that new life? It is that that we will build to this morning as we work through the Word of God together. Let us notice in verse 28, if we will, for a moment before we move on to other portions of the Scripture to try to give us background and fullness To our understanding of these things. Now, by faith, and these are the two words that precede each and every account, it's kind of our trigger words that we see that God is now trying to instruct us in another aspect of the life of the individual in which he is displaying for us. Now, by faith, this is what he did. He kept the Passover. Some of your translations see the Greek word meaning more implement or institute Passover. I have no problem with that. I think there is some um, very uh, convincing evidence that it's more that just than uh, Moses just. Uh, keeping the Passover, that he also implemented it and instituted it. Now, I want to be careful to say this, that we know that it's God who gave it to Moses. Moses then by faith simply, I think, implemented would be the best English word that I could put there. He did what God asked him to do. He trusted God that by putting the lamb's blood over the doorpost, that the firstborn child of that home would be spared. And by the sprinkling of the blood, and again it was on the doorposts and the lentil, and the purpose of this blood was so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, when reading the book of Hebrews, we must take into consideration why the book of Hebrews was written. And this is why I took such time to explain to you about those who had been exiled from their homeland due to their persecuted state because of their Christianity and their faith in Jesus Christ. Why would the writer of Hebrews Remind them about the Passover. What was significant about the Passover that would encourage these Jewish believers, newfound Jewish believers, to continue on with Christ rather than uh, forsaking Christ and returning to Judaism? Why bring up the Passover? Well, the understanding has to then be found within the original account itself. And if I may have you turn back now in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, let's go back and begin to see from the very beginning what God's initial intentions were for the Passover. And it's in Exodus chapter 12 that the Passover is given to Moses and his brother Aaron to be again implemented for within all the people there in Egypt. And within it, I think we begin to see some of the indications of why the Passover would be mentioned to those believers struggling uh, in their newfound faith and their contemplating returning to Judaism. In verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. The first month of the year of the Jewish calendar is now being established and precedes the institution of the Passover and the observation of the Passover uh, meal here in Egypt. And God is saying to the Jewish people, this is the beginning of your new life. For up until this point, for 400 years, they have dwelt in Egypt they had become slaves. They had become a, a demographic a social class of people within Egypt that truly occupied the entire area of Goshen. And, you know, I, I hate to say this, but Goshen was a, almost like a suburb of, of Cairo, of where the, uh, the pharaoh was. And it was, you know, all Jewish people. You know, when you go to our city, Chicago... You know, we have uh, you know the section of Chinatown, and we have the Italian neighborhoods where you get some of the best food in the, the entire world, and then you can travel a few miles over, and there's a the Hispanic community, you get fantastic tacos. See, reminds I'm a little hungry, can you tell? Um, that being said, you know, you see how you know cities have been segregated by nationality, and it's, it was so because of the language in which they spoke. We all understand that, right? They all spoke a certain language, and that way when people came from other regions of the world and immigrated to America, they would then populate our cities, and they felt most comfortable with uh, people from their own country. So they then just simply began to assimilate into their community. And that's why we have the wonderful different national you know, sections of our city that we have today. Uh, But that being said, they then became a real problem because of the mere number of them, the Egyptians became concerned that if they ever rose up against the Egyptian military, they could overthrow it. And so Pharaoh began to persecute the slaves greatly, including the edict to destroy the male child of every uh, Jewish uh, birth. And as a result... God heard the cry of his people. Moses was sent back to them. We know the backstory to that. We've looked at it the last several weeks. And now it's coming time to release the people from their bondages once and for all and to draw them out of Egypt. Now, we're jumping into this, and I don't know about you, but one of the things I uh, like least is walking into the middle of a movie. I don't want to be late for the movie. Even if I have to go through the credits and the, you know, the, the previews of movies to come, I, I don't want to walk into the middle of a movie because you feel like, oh, I've lost the whole backstory. I don't know what's going on. Who's this person? Who's that person? Then my, da- my daughter just says, Dad, shut up. Let's watch the movie. I don't know who anybody is. Why am I watching this thing? When Moses came back to Egypt to deliver his people, Pharaoh resisted in each and every encounter that they had exchange of words that they had. The Bible tells us that the Pharaoh's heart grew colder and harder towards the instructions of God. So then God began to level a series of plagues against the nation of Egypt, sparing his people from that wrath and that judgment, keeping them safe while he brought these plagues upon the, upon Egypt, who was resisting his authority and each one of the plagues if you look at it just briefly was targeted at different egyptian gods in which the egyptian people held sacred and gave their allegiance to god uh, uh, of the bible who was showing his superiority and the fact that these other gods did not exist by overthrowing them in each one of the plagues given now remember when Moses first came in and he threw down his staff and it, be, you know, it became a cobra and then all of a sudden the religious leaders and the magicians, they did the same thing. Moses was set then never to have that parallel. Again, we know that, this, that Satan can do supernatural things and so forth, but God was not going to be upstaged by him. And God was going to set it clear from the very beginning that he was God and they were not. And so it began with the blood of the Nile River and then the frogs that came up out of the Nile and then the gnats that plagued the people of the land of Egypt, the flies and then the plague on the livestock and then the boils came upon the people Hail and lightning and so forth. And then locusts came. And then after the locusts, there was this deep darkness that fell upon the entire world and entire nation. And each and every case, Pharaoh became even harder against the edicts of God and therefore resisted to a greater degree. And then it finally came down to the fact that Pharaoh condemned himself. And God said that this night... The angel of death shall pass through the land of Egypt. And the only way to be spared by the angel of death is to paint the doorposts of your house with the blood of a lamb. Death is a reality in our world due to sin. Let's be clear about that. For the wages of sin is death. One out of one person dies. That reasoning of death is sin. It always is. Now, the catalyst for the physical death might be a physical ailment of some sort, and that's not necessarily a result of sin personally, but it could be just the result of a fallen world in general. But the reason death is in our nation today, in our world today, is because of sin. And therefore, something has to overcome that disobedience that was performed in the garden. And the only way to pay for sin is through death. From the very beginning that Adam and Eve saw that they were naked, God killed two animals to clothe them to show that death had to cover uh, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And from that, individuals gave sacrifices unto God, animal sacrifices. And by their sacrifices, their, blood, their sins were uh, covered, not washed away, not done away with totally, but covered. And then ultimately, God sent his only begotten son. And through his death and the shedding of his blood, death now was simply uh, eliminated. That anyone who believes in him, though they shall die physically, spiritually, you live for all eternity. Now, one of the greatest misconceptions is this, that when a person dies, that's it. Game over, everything ends, and it's simply as if you fall asleep and you, you enter into that state of unconsciousness and all reality becomes uh, null and void and you just rest for all eternity. The Bible clearly says that there is an existence after death, and it's in one of two places. It's either in heaven with the Lord through Jesus Christ, for he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one has eternal life apart from me. Or it's separated from God into a place that was originally created for the devil and his angels, a place that we know as Hades or hell that separates an individual from God for all eternity. That's the reality of the life after. And there is life after death but where will you spend that life, that time? Many people object to the entire concept of hell. I understand why. But I don't think they fully uh, worked through the issue in their own personal minds because I think they would understand that if an individual stood before God and is guilty of sin then God has the responsibility of being just and judging that individual accordingly. But that doesn't state his love. I thought God was supposed to be all loving. He is. But he specifically demonstrated that love by sending his only begotten son that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's how God demonstrated his love towards us. God has done everything He possibly can to keep you out of hell. If you want to get there, you'll get there of your own fruition. You have to climb over 2,000 years of the Word of God or 4,000 years of the Word of God. You have to climb over Jesus Christ. You have to climb over the church. You have to get through everything and then finally get to the point where you simply resist the manner in which God says you may escape and then you will find yourself in hell. These individuals had a choice there in Egypt. You can paint the doorpost with the blood of a lamb and be spared, or you can resist this, you can choose not to do it and spare the consequences of it. And God was fully just in judging these individuals for sin, but he also gave them a manner in which to escape, and they chose not to take it. Let's continue on in chapter 12, if we can. In verse 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he shall... I'm sorry, that then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You, can, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its intraparts, and you shall let none of of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. This was the instruction to the Jewish people. And God was painting for them a picture of what he was going to do in the distant future. He said, take a lamb that was without blemish. The New Testament would say that the lamb uh, that God had selected had to be without blemish or spot. A blemish was a defect that was uh, caused during the lifespan of the lamb here on this earth. That something happened, either it got caught on a fence or it got maimed in some way and therefore that blemish would exclude it from being a sacrifice unto God. The word spot that we find in the New Testament where it says spot and blemish, a spot was something that a defect that the lamb was born with and therefore again would disqualify it from being uh, able to be sacrificed unto God. God demanded that the lamb be perfect. God demanded that the lamb be perfect in every way. And to guarantee that the people of the Jewish nation would have to raise the lamb and keep it confined in a certain way to make sure that even when it's now born without any spot, now they had to keep it for one year to make sure that it is without blemish. And they would go to great lengths to make sure the lamb was kept without blemish, to make sure the little lamb didn't hurt himself in any way, shape, or form, for the lamb also had to be a male lamb. To do so, we have historical accounts of the Jewish people keeping their lamb almost as a pet within the house and treated as if they were treating one of the little kids. You know, the lamb would sleep with the children, the lamb would be in the house with the kids and the family. It would be a family pet. But then at the end of that year, it would be that individual, that lamb that would be then slaughtered before them to keep the Passover feast. And you say, wow, that's just horrific. No, that's what God was going to do 2,000 years later. See, God was going to send His only begotten Son into the world, and He was without spot. He was perfect when He was born. He was without sin, for God was His Father. For 33 years, He, He grew up, and He was without blemish. He was without sin in any way, shape, or form. He became the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. In fact, the New Testament calls him what? The Lamb of God. See, God wanted the people of Israel to know what he was going to do before he did it. This is why we call it a foreshadowing. Once Christ had now done what he has done, the foreshadow pours over the the history of the Old Testament and we see now in a great light what the meaning of some of these things were. But in this, we see that God then says, Now, when you eat the Passover, make sure you have everything packed because you're moving out the next day. This is the beginning of a new life. This is it. It is a new life where I am going to separate you from the people of Egypt and you are going to be my people, God says. I'm going to give you a national identity. For I am going to be your God, the God who has uh, smitten every pagan God of the known world. And I am going to lead you, and I am going to be your God, and I'm going to establish you as my people. I'm going to give you a hope in a future. I'm going to give you a land to dwell in safely. And as long as you obey me, I am going to bless you. But if you turn from me and you turn to other gods, there will be consequences. And that's the, in really the entire Old Testament in five minutes. Uh, that was the cliff notes. Uh, for they had provoked God greatly over and over and over again because they kept turning their back on him. And the reason that he settled these people was to, in and through them, bring one who was going to be born in a manger, who was going to be conceived uh, in the womb of a of a, a fair lady named Mary, and conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, and his name was going to be Jesus. And that's why God was doing everything that he was doing. And the writer of Hebrews knew that right now these people like you and I today need to be reminded that this new life that Jesus Christ has given us is meant to be lived for His purposes and His glory. We are separated from the world so that we may worship Him. We are separated from the world that we may live for Him glorifying Him through all that we do and say. That we really, truly, by faith, acknowledge that not only is He our Savior who separated us and spared us from the wrath to come because we're not covered by the blood of a lamb painted on a doorpost. We are covered by the blood of the one true God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ the Old Testament is, I'm sorry, the New Testament is replete with examples over and over and over again as the New Testament writers point to Jesus as being the ultimate fulfillment of this Passover lamb. But what I'd like to conclude with this morning is the reality of Passover within the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people, not only being the institution in which they saw as the beginning of new life, the salvation in which God has uh, provided for them, but I want you to see for a moment the manner in which Paul uses it in a very, very interesting way in a letter to the Corinthian church. And if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'd appreciate it. For as we make our way there, the church in Corinth was a mess, (laughs) literally. And Paul the Apostle makes one of the greatest declarations concerning Jesus Christ in the New Testament written to, to Gentile believers who don't fully understand that as Christians, they are no longer to live in the same manner in which they lived previous to coming to Christ. Paul saw the Christian life as just that. Not only was it new life given, And that new life starts the moment we come to Jesus Christ. We become a new creation. That new life is possible because God has now dealt with, through the blood of Jesus Christ, all of our past sin. That's an extraordinary thing. And not like the Old Testament where the sin was simply covered. It's called kofar in the Hebrew, covered. And of course, as soon as they sinned again, they would have to perform another sacrifice to cover the sin once again but the bible tells us that the blood of jesus christ that has applied to us by faith as we simply trust him as our savior and lord washes away our sin completely and it's remembered no more what an extraordinary new beginning And since I've been given such a new beginning that my past, everything that I've done, everything that I've ever done against the heart of God has been dealt with. But not only that, as I continue on in life, I know that there's a duality now in me as a believer that my flesh wants to do one thing and the spirit wants to do another and they keep wrestling against each other and therefore, like Paul says, those things I want to do, I don't do and those things I don't want to do, I do perfectly. And as a result, we are all works in progress, right? None of us have arrived. God is still working on us. So come on, let's give each other a lot of grace, okay? We're all works in progress, you know. Uh, I know you wish everybody could be where you are. And it's like, oh, I guess I just got to be patient, you know. And they're a work in progress. And one day he'll get there and she'll get there. But we're all works in progress. God's working in us he's changing us from the inside out. You know why? Because he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. He's cleaning us up. He's renewing us. He's strengthening us. He's changing us through the reconciliation back to him. The question though, the underlying question, what do I do with this new life? What do I do with this freedom that God has given me from the past and the sin and the flesh and death and so forth? What do I do with it all? Do I continue living for myself? Do I continue uh, allowing myself to be the center of my life? Or is Christ now asking to be the point of preeminence within my life? I think I read that somewhere in Colossians. That Christ must be preeminent. He must be at the center of our lives. He must be at the heart of our lives. Christ doesn't revolve around me. I should bow before Him. And as a result, I am not living for myself any longer. It's Christ who lives through me. And as a result, Paul now writes to these individuals in Corinth, and they're having a very difficult time. Sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth, such as it is here in the United States of America. And if you look with me in verse 5 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 7 of chapter 5, you will see that he introduces Christ as what? He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I don't know how you feel about that, but Paul meant it affectionately. As you really are unleavened. Please notice that. For you really are unleavened. I'll tell you what that means in just a moment. Now notice what he says here. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now there's no ambiguity. Christ is the Passover lamb. Whatever the Passover lamb once represented to the people uh, and to the nation of Israel, it has now been superseded by the person of Jesus Christ. Why would Paul, this is my question, why would Paul introduce Jesus as the Passover lamb in this particular chapter? You don't find that question as fascinating as I do? Uh, Anyways, um, I am a Bible geek, so... Why would he introduce it now? Look at what he says. Let's begin at verse 1 now. We can read through this very quickly. It says, It's actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even amongst the pagans. There is something happening, Paul's saying, that shouldn't be happening, a degree of sexual immorality that even the pagans frown upon. A man has his father's wife. Most likely it is the stepson, um, having an affair with his stepmother, that's what most historians and grammatical scholars believe that this is indicating. And you are arrogant about it. Another word that we could maybe put there is progressive. that's interesting. that'll get some people that's going to get letters. <laughs> and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Shouldn't you be ashamed of this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, Paul says, meaning that his authority still exists as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing this letter. And though I'm not there personally, this letter is indicating my instruction. And please understand, as if I was present, I already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Well, I thought we should not judge. That's not what the Bible means by that. We can definitely call sin, sin. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, meaning that I'm with you in that time. And again, don't, it's, it's not a mystic type of thing. He's just saying, I'm with you in that way. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's saying, separate this young man from you that he may have an opportunity to see that he is wrong, an opportunity to repent, and then come back into the, into the fellowship. But you've got to deal with this. Why do we have to deal with it? Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The Corinthian church had this mindset that if we're all saved by grace, what does it matter if we sin or not? It's all by grace. We don't really have a responsibility to, with, you know, to withdraw from fleshly actions, from sin that is indicated there in the scripture. We're all saved by grace. And Paul's saying, no, that's ridiculous. He says, no, you got to deal with this guy because what he is doing is going to permeate. That's what this whole issue of leaven is all about. If you are a baker, you put leaven into bread and it does this extraordinary thing within the bread that causes the bread to rise by putting those cute little air pockets of, does anybody know what it is? Putrefaction in the bread that you are eating. How do you feel about that? You're never going to look at bread the same way again, are you? That's what leaven was kept for. They put it in the loaf and then they would uh, bake that loaf and take a little bit of the leaven out and they put it to the side so they could put it into the next loaf so it would rise once again. If you're a baker, you understand that principle uh, precisely. Paul's saying this is going to happen with all of you. This sin that you are allowing within your fellowship is going to spread, it's going to permeate every aspect of your church family. And so exclude him for the purposes of repentance. Exclude him that he may see that what he is doing is wrong. And that he may repent and be saved. So he says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Now look at this, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Christ has positionally washed you of sin, past, present and future positionally god the father looks through jesus christ as us and as, as an individual and sees us perfect now let me say that again he sees us through christ and sees us perfect god the father sees us through jesus christ and his sacrifice and sees us perfect positionally practically we're still catching up aren't we <laughs> To our positional standing before God. This is why I am allowed to enter into the presence of God the Father through Christ. Because His blood has washed me from sins past, present, and future. He has established me. And this is what Paul's saying here. You've been unleavened through the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ in your life because why? He's your Passover lamb, He's the one that sets you apart. He's the one that gave you a new beginning. He's the one that gave you new life. Now spend that life living for him. Now notice how it continues. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse 8, therefore, uh, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not as we did before we were Christians. Let, Let us not gather in that same mindset The leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral people of the world. I'm so glad Paul wrote that. Or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or calls him or herself a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a swindler. And what he's saying here is that one who professes to be a Christian and has no problem living in such a way, he's saying don't associate with them. He is certainly not talking about the brother or sister who is struggling in these things. Someone who's struggling with alcohol, someone who's struggling with... um, I I don't know how you struggle being a swindler. You know, I was just there in Aldi and I ripped the guy off. I didn't mean to. Um, He's not talking about one who is struggling, but one who is professing to be a Christian who has no conviction concerning living in this manner not even to eat with such a one he says for what I have to do with judging the outsider is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge God judges those who are outside but purge the evil person from among you. Here's what Paul's saying the Passover lamb has made the old life incompatible with the new life we are not to live in the same manner as we once did prior to coming to Jesus Christ. So to those Hebrew believers who are now Christians scattered as nomads around Asia Minor, they're hearing this and... He is saying to them, remember, God separated you. God has given you new life. Now live for him and his glory. Even though the world may hate you and persecute you, continue to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and continue to love your neighbor as yourself, as Christ has called us to do, because this is the manner in which the new life is meant to be lived in Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with this, and I thank you for your patience this morning. We've gone a few minutes longer than we normally do, but let's go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I'm sure that there are some of you amongst us that could recite Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 for us two great verses on salvation. As Paul has written to the Ephesians, For grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. Now, how many of you say amen to that? Oh, amen to that. Amen. It's a gift of God. Credible gift. The problem is a grammatical one. We divorce these two verses from verse 10. Now, in your newer translations of your English Bibles, this should be a continuation in the same paragraph with the two verses that p- preceded it. Grammatically in the Greek, verse 10 is connected to 289. Uh, two we are saved in 289, right? But it leaves a question to be then asked. What do I do in my newfound salvation? What is the purpose of my newfound salvation? What is the reason for which I am saved? Well, Paul concludes that by saying this in verse 10, which is included in the statement in which precedes it. For we are his workmanship, meaning that we are a work in progress. He is doing the work created in Christ Jesus for what? Underline this, good works. The purpose of your new life is to allow you to walk in good works. These works do not save you. These works do not maintain your salvation. But this is what the new life has been given to you for that you may walk in these good works. Now notice, these works are specific, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God wants us to live in this new life in the way He prescribed for us to live. And if that means living for Him and suffering the persecution of this world, suffering the hatred of this world and so forth, then so be it. Because I am now using this new life in the manner in which God would have me to use it for His glory. I am to love the Lord thy God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. Living for His glory. And to those who were abandoned, scattered by all humanity, God is saying, this is new life in which you are living. At this moment, at this microcosm of your moment, seems so desolate, separated, and alone but eternally, it is the first step into glory. You're not living for yourself anymore. You're living for the, new, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who came to take away our sins.